welcome to the founders of Web3 series by Outlier Ventures and me, your host, Jamie Burke. Together, we're going to meet the entrepreneurs, their backers, and the leading policymakers that are shaping Web3. Together, we're going to try to define what is Web3, explore its nuances, and understand the mission and purpose that drive its founders. If you enjoy what you hear, please do subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission that is Web3. Cool. So hello, Boris. Good to welcome you to our new podcast and have you on here as one of our first guests. The reason why I wanted to invite you specifically was because I think you're operating at an interesting layer in this emergent Web3 stack. Also, your kind of form or legacy and experience more generally in the open source movement. Jamie, is um, that you t- telling me that I'm old? Is this another old guy thing? Ca- kind of, yeah. Kind okay. Of. I'm, gl- okay, I'm glad, cool. you, glad you took yeah. that well. <laughs> so, I, you know, maybe, maybe we start off with just like a very quick intro and to you and, and, and Fission, but kind of holding back a little bit on exactly all the wonderful stuff you do at Fission so we can kind of, you know, drill down on that a little bit later. Sure, absolutely. So... Uh, I'm Boris Mann. I'm the CEO and co-founder of uh, Fission. Uh, Fission helps developers build powerful web native apps that uh, look to have user-controlled data and end-to-end encryption and some other interesting features that we think are highly relevant and important today. I'm actually the less technical member of our crew. Um, Which is disturbing in a way. To think of you as the... Yeah, yeah, uh, but uh, we're built, it's a tool for developers, um, and I have a long history of uh, working with the, the development community. So back in the day, I helped build the uh, open source Drupal community on the transition from Web 1.0 to Web 2.0, and um, so here I am again on the shores of Web 2 to Web 3. I mean, is there such a thing as Web 3? Do we generally think, genuinely think that there is something distinctly different about this emergent stack? And if so, you know, how, how would you define it? Well, I think we always um, use these labels and often practitioners who are very deep in it uh, fight against any particular definition and hate it when it gets, uh, you know, just turned into a little tag. This happened in the web two times. Uh, I think of Tim O'Reilly and the two conference that was, 2000 us dollars a ticket i just went out and hung in the hung out in the lobby as i always do so i think it's useful for web3 to to use it as a shorthand and to really explore what it means and so in that context what's what's different what's the promise and i know your that the whole premise to to fission is this kind of pragmatic application or deployment of of Web3 technologies, but you know, yeah. what, it, what is it? What's there? For sure, because we keep, we keep using it or even saying things like Web3 tech without, uh, without defining it. So I think uh, I have a pretty uh, big tent approach to defining Web3. I want a lot, a lot of people to be comfortable under that banner and that it's not really like owned by any one person or foundation. And so I think it is both uh, technologies and architectures of those technologies, as well as 
ideologies. So, you know, Web3 is more peer-to-peer. Web3 is an ideology of not having data or apps locked into centralized uh, providers or silos. It's more about things like federation. So uh, instead of one big Facebook, you, uh, you know, maybe everybody runs their own desktop Facebook. It includes things like public infrastructure or commons infrastructure. So when you think of something like a blockchain, that is something that's global infrastructure that everybody can connect to. IPFS, the interplanetary file system that Fission uses a lot of, we're really excited about. And we think of it as public infrastructure, files that, you, that anyone can access anywhere and in fact uh, can easily be sitting on your uh, desktop machine or your phone, not just in a centralized server. So some of those are the like themes uh, that, I, that I see. Yeah. And I mean, it's a bit dangerous for me to to fire this shot this early on in the podcast. But, you know, when you're, when you're mentioning there's an ideology there, and this is something that we've kind of wrestled with an outlier to a degree, is our blockchain technologies or the Web3 stack more generally, is it inherently political? Or, I, or can, can you kind of be almost agnostic and, and look at it purely as a technology? Is, that, is it inescapable? Is that why it's so tribal? So dogmatic sometimes? I think that's very interesting. I think there's, there's some people who uh, espouse pieces of the ideology and then you look at their architectures and then you start asking questions or, you know, that complicated <laughs> question of, of how decentralized is this? And, and what does that even mean? So, you know, we lean pretty far towards the pragmatic side of things and we've set ourselves some boundaries around that. You know, one of our principles of what we're trying to do at Fission is that everything that we use, all the tech that we use, needs to work in every browser, including mobile browsers, without plugins. So we're still using some pretty cutting edge, very brand new tech. I'll give one example is is, um, some browser APIs, the Web Crypto API and Web Auth N, which enables passwordless login with uh, private keys held for you by the browser. Most people, don't even know that this exists. Your browser will actually take care of this for you. You know, there's differences between Firefox and, and Chrome. We hope Firefox gets support for some slightly different kinds of cryptography, but we've set that as a constraint so that we can do things. Another principle, we think that there's gonna be data privacy is part ideology and part emerging feature of Web3. End-to-end encryption should be a thing that all users can expect. So why not make it so that those are built into apps by default? I, I cheated. You, I feel like you need to redirect me on that one. <laughs> no, no. I, yeah, that was, that, was, that, was, that was good. And I don't think you would have upset, upset too many people. So is Web3 for you fixing Web2? And I know whenever you ask somebody initially <sighs> to, de- to define Web3, the go-to use case is always around social media. And so... Is that because we, we, we define Web3 as, as, as an antithesis or as a, as a fix to Web2, or is it something else entirely new and, and different? So I, I definitely feel that, having been involved in kind of helping to birth a bunch of Web2 apps around Drupal and RSS and, and the, the thing that became social media today, 
and I kind of feel we, like we screwed up, those of us involved at the time. And uh, some of those things that I worked on very hard at the time of, of, of Drupal, as an example, making it very easy for anyone to publish online. I find those Web2 apps, those LampStack apps, to be too complicated for users to self-host today. So we're right back to, you know, kind of have this other thing where you're, where you're, where you're having to, to connect in through someone else. So I think that's definitely part of it. I think the other part of this is the thing that arose as part of Web2 is part of logging into sites and, and personalization. I think that's, that's, a, that's a big thing that characterized Web2 it is, uh, is the advertising supported web. So the reason that our data is tracked everywhere is so that our profile and our demographics can be sold as a product to advertisers. The reason that the data is gathered and advertisers shown is because we had an early expectation that everything should be free. And I think that's another piece of, of Web3 is really getting more about what does it mean to be part of a commons? Should I be paying? Am I involved in hosting this app? Am I, do I understand the agreement that I'm making in participating in this? So that's, there's a bunch there. Yeah. So I wanted, I was going to try to avoid this only because I've just been speaking with, with Trent of Ocean and the topic of Tim Berners-Lee and Solid and, and Pods came up. But it, I kind of have to ask that, given you've gone down this track, you know, when you're talking about this kind of data custody or, you know, self-hosting, I, I believe you refer to it as serverless. Maybe I ask a few questions linked to this. So the first one is having been... Being an older gentleman who's been through the few cycles, do you see some of the same biases playing out um, do you, in a way that you can acknowledge there's some learnings from maybe yeah. naive, naiveties? Do you, do, you, do you still see them being played out in, in alternatives that are being proposed? Look, one of the labels for Web3, because this is one of the things that everyone argues about, was supposed to be the semantic web and RDF. And I was a big fan. I fell deep, deep down the semantic web rabbit hole. Uh, it appealed to the way that I like to contextualize and consume information and, and amazing. Realistically, as a stack to implement things, it has remained firmly rooted in academia and far removed from how people actually need to implement applications. I think that the goals of Solid are totally something that I, that I agree with. The actual specs and architecture is not something that I think is workable. And the implementations today are actually just using the same LAMP stack style patterns that we've been building for 30 years. And that's really where our thinking shifts with Fission. Serverless is another one where like, we're literally not allowed to talk about what that means as a, as a definition. <laughs> um, we, and you guys we, are talking about post-serverless last time. We said, well, exactly. it's not quite serverless. We're actually post-serverless. So what? Exactly. You know, I, I don't. To be honest, with you, I'm struggling with serverless. So, but yeah. let's let's go there. Come on, let's let try let's try to define sure. it. And you know, people sure. are going to hate you, but that's okay. No, no, no. So, I mean, I think part of this is is there's this. Uh, we talk about things like full stack and and um, the other rise of Web two, uh, really Web one, um, and then that bled into Web two as well, is. Uh, open source and Linux and the LAMP stack, Linux, Apache, MySQL, and at the time the P's were PHP, Python, or Perl. 
there's various other uh, kind of stacks today, but they all kind of look the same. You have to actually manage an entire operating system, and then you have to manage a web server, and then you have to manage some application code, and then you have to manage a database. So that's a lot to learn, and each one of those pieces have to be secured and updated and care and feeding of. So serverless basically says, how about you don't have to care about the operating system? And you no longer have to care about the web server. So we've taken care of the L and the A. Oh, and by the way, the database, rather than it being something that you actually have to kind of manage separately, just plug that in also as a service into, into your application code so that the, there's no database server in there. So we literally have gotten stripped it all away and we just have application code. And that as the developer or the person who wants to, to host this permanently online, you don't have to care about the rest of that stack. Does that make sense? It does to me. So let, let's go a little bit deeper in, in terms of, you know, you're rolling out this, this middleware. I, I'm assuming you, you would call it kind of developer to developer type tooling. Yes. And, you know, this, this is something, as you know, we're very passionate at Outlier about when we're talking about adoption of Web3, at least initially, what we're really talking about is developers adopting it because sub 1% of all activity on GitHub by developers is even remotely related to, to Web3. So, you know, the mainstream of developers don't care, can't understand. You know, what do you think it is? Do you think it's that they don't care, they can't understand it, it's not usable? Has it been tarnished by the whole crypto thing? What are, <laughs> all what are of the, the barriers? All of, all of the above. I think the interesting thing for a lot of things in this space is in part, you are looking at distributed systems problems. Some of this really does require, you know, reading academic papers to understand what's going on. And that's not really the pattern that we've, we've seen. And I think the other piece just ends up being serverless itself is something that's still brand new. When I, when I say to people, we're not going to build Lampstaff style architectures anymore that's still a brand new thing. And we're, we're layering a bunch more things on, on, on top of it. And I think if, if you're asking people to install uh, users of these applications to install plugins in the browser, that really lowers the, the, the usability well. And until recently, uh, many people building in the space basically only built desktop web apps that didn't work at all on mobile, which just seems crazy to me. Like, you know, Hey, that's where all the users are. Yeah, so I think I think that's the starting starting point. And what we have to do is we have to meet people where they are. And we're really tackling that. We're saying, look, what if we can give you tools that make building all types of applications better? It happens to use some Web3 tech, but it's easier, faster, cheaper, and you don't have to learn DevOps in the same way that you could use a global uh, blockchain to store data and not have to manage a database. That's an amazing promise. And it stays up all the time, but there's a gap in getting there. So how, how do you prioritize your roadmap? What tooling, you know, sequentially to, to, to roll out are all the tools you develop kind of some part of a sequential master plan to build a suite of tools, or is it a bit more kind of reactive and responsive to where you see an emergent need? Okay. I've been waiting for the right time to drop this phrase in. Jamie, that's a really good question. Uh, <laughs> awesome. At least I got one. <laughs> so I, th the way that I think about this is we have a pretty clear plan on this in terms of when we sit down and we look at um, what does a developer, and in our case, 
we're going a little step further. What does a front-end developer need and what can we power them with to launch an app? And you think about it, and there's actually a really great experience of uh, today with, with many frameworks, uh, React, Vue, Gatsby, you name it, of sort of local development, uh, live reloading. You know, you're sitting there as a developer and you're developing and you're designing and it works great. And then you have to decide about deployment. Okay, where are you going to put it? Well, we're going to have to do hosting. Check. Fission has done that. Okay, well, hosting doesn't just cut it. You need a domain name for an app. Great. We've integrated DNS and done some automation around there. Okay, I've, at this point, I've got a website. I want to do a login. Okay, we're going to have to add um, identity. We have to add authentication so that users can log in. Now that we've got identity, we can do encrypted data instead of just open files on the web. And at that point, we've covered a large part of the use, use case of what it means to actually have an app. You can log in, you can have encrypted data, your stuff is hosted, uh, and you've got a regular Web2 domain name, asterisk. Underneath, Fission also happens to put it onto the interplanetary file system for you. So while we make sure it stays up, it's also served directly from your laptop. It's plugged into a global CDN and your software can work online. So those are extra features that couldn't be done before, including careful attention to things like end-to-end -end encryption. And from there, we'll go out to even more appy serverless things where we're going to do as much as possible in the front end client side, but not everything can be done client side. And then we'll help developers basically build those kind of serverless functions as well. And I haven't mentioned databases, so stay tuned for decentralized databases. And then we've delivered an entire stack that lets you build any kind of application in a way that it's live directly from your machine. And we think that's a pretty compelling option where we pre-integrated a number of standards, architected it to be secure by default, and in the same way that Ruby on Rails kind of had this all-in-one package, we see ourselves as building the kind of serverless version of a, a Ruby on Rails for 2020 and beyond. Okay, great. So, so let's kind of zoom up or back a little bit. You know, we've been talking a lot about, if I could summarize it, kind of abstracting away a lot of the complexity of Web3 technologies, but how do you handle the complexity of tokens and the economics that underpin this new infrastructure that you're, you're leveraging to develop tooling that needs stable pricing and everything else for a typical web developer to, to adopt and rely upon? Yeah, I think that's an area where we've got a lot of question marks. Right now, we are essentially saying, you pay us a regular SaaS fee, Mr. Developer, and uh, we'll keep your app online. As we went down this path and, and of thinking of what does a developer need? How can we make it easier for them? Well, one of the things the developer needs is to make money or get supported in some way. And so we started thinking a lot about what it means for us to actually help our customers, developers, to make money with their apps as well. And are you, are you familiar with the GitHub sponsors, Jamie? Yeah, sure. So basically GitHub code hosting, if you go to the actual like source code, then there's a little sponsor button um, that a project or a developer can be sponsored. But that's pretty far away from where a user is actually looking at that running application. You have to like know enough to go like search down where the source code is to say, hey, I like this app. 
What if we brought that sponsorship model or maybe a subscription model directly into the app? And we can do this, of course, because we've got an identity system. And, and that's where we're playing with right now. Can we actually have users of apps directly connect with developers to make money and, and actually help that discussion even further, not through a centralized app store where there's a review, but, but can we actually bring that into the running app a little bit more and have users understand that if they'd like this thing to continue, that they're going to have to help support it in, in, uh, in some way. So right now, um, and, and that's the luxury we have with the IPFS side of things, is it's infrastructure that pretty much just runs. We can charge users, use the benefits of having a commons infrastructure and keep it up and running for, for everyone as part of this network. And then down the line, looking at things like Filecoin and integrating that as well. So, you know, we see the network of networks forming and we see a marketplace forming and we see value going back and forth. And our hypothesis is, is that we can make it really easy to get these apps up and running for web two and web three use cases. And then we can engage users and developers in the network in taking that next step. So that's our theory. Get it up and running, get it at scale, get it working, and then introduce these economic support flows next, which is a long way of me saying I'm punting for now. <laughs> so you're kind of the gateway drug to Web3. Yes. Um, and, you know, understandably, it sounds like you, you're not fully committed or convinced of any one particular way in which the, or the business model of web three necessarily that will be built on top through these dApps. But you know, th this idea that people could support a DAP uh, in, in a number of different ways. And is, is this tied to this making open source radical again? And that's a statement you've used multiple times. So, yeah, so, so absolutely. I think, um, so basically, I think part of this is if, if, if you don't, uh, a lot of people in the, in, in the Web3 space that, that lean blockchain have tied themselves into knots around like, oh, you know, because of onboarding and because of gas, it's, it's complicated. We're just going to have to pay for all of this on, on behalf of users. I've seen this movie before, Jamie. <laughs> uh, it ends in selling data and selling advertising. So I'd much rather be, uh, and, and there is a technical aspect of this, right? So uh, if you pay for a subscription, can, can the, the app developer take care of it for you? I mean, really, that's in the situation that we're in now. If you sign up for a centralized SaaS service, then I guess that SaaS service like stores your data for you. And, you know, that's part of paying for it. And uh, we're saying that's on the user. We actually expose to the user that the data that an app generates sits with them. So that's definitely a different mode. That's not the radical part. The radical part is that we used to actually fight back in the day in uh, a part of the web one, web two was, was the rise of open source. And uh, I spent a long time getting hated on by, uh, by Microsoft. And those, that's uh, a little different today, right? Um, Microsoft bought GitHub. Um, the champions of open source, right? That's big, a... big, big open source, right? But it's this like corporate open source, you know, uh, 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 developers don't really think about it that much, right? There, there definitely are. And there's, there's more people in the web three space who, see some of the um, ideology and, and pick copy left licenses like the GPL. Uh, but even that 
um, is actually not that complicated to work around. So when I say, should open source be radical again? One, actually talk to users about the means of production that goes into the app and what the trade-off is and that they need to support it if they want it to stay alive and the humans who build it to keep working on it. That's one. You know, co-ops, DAOs, other things like that are people like working together in different business models like this to support the development and running of, of software that they want to see live. Uh, and two, giving a bit of a fuck you to corporations that frankly benefit from the fruits of permissive open source licensing and don't really give a lot back unless it directly benefits them. So what if we change that agreement and said, uh, I'm a big fan of, um, well, I'll, I'll get into that in a bit. So that's, that's, that's what I think. I think it's time to fight again and to actually talk about this. Yes, that's really interesting. So do you think that obviously open source is very popular now, more money probably than ever is, is flowing into it. IBM have been supporting initiatives like Hyperledger and of course the re recent acquisition of, of Red Hat. Do you, firstly, are you seeing more and more players like yourself emerging, operating in the middleware space? And, you know, do you imagine that kind of a, 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 the M&A required to build up the service component around middleware solutions is going to lead to mergers and acquisitions anytime soon? You know, of those corporates that you've mentioned, Jamie, I, I really think a lot of that is just bullshit. So, um, you know, they're hiring full-time employees and the uh, license of some code sort of happens to be open. Um, but that isn't really the same thing. Uh, it's sort of corporate open source. And, uh, and that's kind of what I mean about, about changing things to maybe be a little more radical again, including different licenses. So, but to your question about M&A, so I think the arc that we're seeing, because uh, we also have to situate it around sort of technological de development and waves We've mentioned serverless a couple times. Um, we're kind of at peak container. Um, so we take those yeah, land right. stack applications and we stick them in a container. So we're not having separate servers. We kind of have virtual servers, but we haven't changed the architecture at all. Uh, we've commoditized how to kind of lift and shift these, uh, uh, these containers. Um, the harder part is learning new ways of architecting things. Um, and, and that's kind of some of the things around serverless. Amazon. So, sorry to stop you there, but is that no like problem. a, so is, is Red Hat a good example there? So I went to a Red Hat conference recently and it was all about containers, as you say. It is, so are you, are you saying that it's kind of this, this IBM, increasing? Yeah. IBM thought that it was buying a life raft, except what it bought was already leaking. <laughs> Red, this is going to be one of the most controversial, maybe not podcast I've had, which is great. You give me <laughs> so, a clickbait. So I think that, I think that um, you know, Amazon, again, being kind of the largest provider of web services, they're way ahead in uh, serverless, specifically their Amazon Lambda offering. Uh, but there's some stuff that's, that's coming out that we're watching very closely that, that uh, we think is better labeled as edge computing. And there's fuzziness between the two. Uh, Fastly has their compute at edge and uh, Cloudflare have their Cloudflare workers. Neither of those companies people thought of as something that you could put application code on. And yet here they are in this, in this new architecture. So yes, I think companies are at some point going to wake up and go, 
uh, we don't have an offering in this space. And there's the smart people who know this architecture are sitting in some companies and we're going to have to buy them if we even want to stay in the game, which is exactly what happened the last time around um, with, uh, with the rise of containers. And arguably, there's actually more of this stuff still happening in containers while other players are already looking onto the, the kind of next wave. Um, so yeah, I think there's going to generate a bunch of uh, uh, M&A and uh, um, as people adjust where a lot of things that used to be really hard uh, become commodity or utility. And so people are going to have to keep moving and being like, oh, this is the innovation that we've added. And our kind of theory is that we're, we're actually heading to a space around things like WebAssembly, right? But we don't even talk about that. I think WebAssembly is part of Web3. Yes, uh, absolutely. It's, it's Increasingly, the fourth, right? The fourth programming environment support in the browser after CSS, HTML, and JavaScript. That's amazing. You mean we can run computation on my local machine? Or maybe I can push the computation around in any programming language, not just JavaScript? That's amazingly powerful. I and mean, you look at things like uh, Figma, which is a collaborative design tool that runs in the browser. So think of it as like Photoshop. Runs on WebAssembly. Would not have been possible. So that's the other part. What new things can happen? Edge computing, WebAssembly, serverless, hostless. Some of these things are going to be hype. Some of these things are going to be foundational for the next wave and people are going to have to buy their way into it. So does, does some of that take, if we kind of extend that to the, the realm of the, the possible, are we, are we talking about this enabling entirely new ways of collaborating and working on the internet in, in, in browser? Yeah, definitely. I think there's this interesting trend. So when we, uh, we often bring up something like Slack, um, which is infamous for running on Electron on desktop. So Electron being a, a framework for using browser technology to build things on the desktop. So I think we're going to keep having this kind of back and forth. So WebAssembly give us the ability to run desktop class applications in the, the, the browser. Well, at the same time, that same tech could be used to run portable applications on desktops. And that's in part how we talk about uh, Fission as enabling web native apps. So what, is, what does that even mean? Usually when we see native apps, we mean mobile apps. And we're saying we've got computation in the browser and with WebAssembly, we've got even better computation. What we don't have in the browser is identity and a file system and encryption. So that's what Fission is doing is building this stack so that you can build powerful web native apps that actually work the way that users are used to apps working on their mobile phones where they retain control of their data, but with the benefit of that open commons of the web rather than uh, centralized app stores. And the difference is, is that you're baking in, in the very DNA, these kind of, the, the, the ideology around privacy. I don't know whether you say privacy enhancing, privacy preserving through encryption. You know, you talk about presumably data custody. So the, these things, that there's two pathways that this could take, right? Yes, exactly. Native apps. So, so we've played fast and loose for a long time with these things. We don't store credit cards in databases anymore, in part because it's all the way to being like regulated. Don't do that. The, the providers won't let you do that. Otherwise, we won't provide you service. So we should have, I'll adopt the, the English pronunciation, privacy by design, just baked in. The user should have control of their data. It should be encrypted. Us as a service provider 
shouldn't see a developer's encrypted data and we shouldn't see a user's data. And a developer shouldn't see the user's data by default, other than the pieces they get permission to do. And we see that evolution on Android and iOS is increasingly the operating system is kind of saying, hey, we're gonna watch out for you and make sure that you understand what an app is asking for permission for. And the user is much more in control and aware of that. And that's the same goal we have for building any kind of application today. So it's interesting, do you buy you know, Apple becoming a privacy company now? I mean, given how much leakage has come through apps, you know, the, the kind of bedrock of much of their mobile business model. Do you, do you trust Apple to deliver on that vision? Or do you, do you think that the level of privacy that we require simply cannot be executed by a centralized entity like Apple, and therefore we need this to be delivered through a commons infrastructure? Well, uh, I'm a big believer in standards and interoperability and kind of portability. Apple, because they control the hardware and the software, they've got stuff like their secure enclave, um, so they can do some things cryptographically that, that I trust that they have an architecture that is, that is very secure. Um, and they're choosing what things to enforce and what not to enforce kind of at the, at the OS layer. But it's still Apple that's an, that's an arbiter in there. But that doesn't help someone who doesn't have an Apple device. This stuff has to work across any sort of device. And I'm definitely nervous about what they're doing in terms of locking down, um, you know, as a developer, um, as, a, as a power user, where they're, they're potentially deciding what I can and can't run or install uh, on my desktop operating system. So we have to push against that. The answer is standard. So it is things like decentralized identifiers, um, the W3C, um, the Sovereign Foundation, the Decentralized Identity Foundation. And then the other part of it is the standards of math, cryptography. And um, we're going to work very hard to be interoperable, to use standards, and to be portable across all operating systems. So one other view that we have, and we definitely have taken inspiration from the extreme usability that Apple offers along with security and, and privacy is, you know, Fission's web native file system can be thought of as an open source iCloud. And I think when you think of iCloud and open source iCloud, great, it'll actually work cross platform and be something that works everywhere. So we're pretty excited about that. Boris, awesome stuff. Uh, I, I could talk to you for hours. I'd preferably over a beer, German beer, <laughs> um, but, but uh, we, we might have to wait a while before we can do that again. Yes, um, virtual beers. So, exactly. But, you know, I, I'm sure that uh, listeners would have found the way that you help somebody kind of navigate the space and explain a hell of a lot of complexity, certainly at the technical level, really useful. And we'll definitely get you on again at some point in the future. In the interim, could you just tell everybody how they can find you and your team? You've got a great co-founder, how they can find your musings, um, more about Fission. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, like literally anyone uh, listening to this right now at any time, um, we are in fact building a sort of end user app for, for everyone so that we can use the framework that we're building and it's called Fission Drive and you can go to drive.fission.codes. Otherwise, fission.codes is the homepage. Blog.fission.codes uh, is where we post new stuff. On Thursdays, we're doing, uh, you know, our, our team is remote, 
Uh, Brooke, my CTO and co-founder, is here in Vancouver. The rest of the team is in Nixa, Missouri, and Ghent, Belgium. So we do a lot of stuff online and remote and always have. So join us Thursday mornings for kind of decentralized web, web three chats, uh, live video streams. Uh, join us for that. And you can Where do find, they find that? Uh, that's at uh, uh, talk.fission.codes. But fission.codes gets you everywhere. And um, you can find me on the Twitters at twitter.com slash at bman and at fission codes for, uh, for all of our stuff there. Uh, Jamie, really appreciate the time. Equally, uh, I look forward to beers and perhaps a nice bourbon or two uh, in the future. Awesome. Thanks, B-Man. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.